0: Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the All Souls Forum. Today's presentation is entitled Supreme Court Decisions 2023 and Beyond and is presented by Alan Roston. It was recorded at All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church October 8, 2023. Our guest today is Alan Rostron. He is a professor at UMKC at the law school. He's been there for 20 years teaching constitutional law and tort law. Alan was in New York City before that. So he lives in Kansas City in the Brookside area with his family, including his canine family. He's going to talk about some of the cases that uh, are pending in front of the Supreme Court and tell you where he thinks the court will go with some of those cases. So, Alan, take it away. Thank you. Thank you,
1: Craig. Well, good morning. Thank you for the invitation to be here. It's nice to come and talk about these things. It is good timing. As Craig said, You know, the Supreme Court does begin their uh, new round of arguments for the year You know, on the first Monday in October, so they've just gotten underway. And so it's also good timing because, you know, the Supreme Court is important. It always has been, but maybe especially so at this time, the country is so divided over things. And so anything they decide, I feel like will be controversial, It will probably outrage, you know, half the country. It's not like they'll make a decision and we all just think, oh, that sounds pretty good. Instead, it will all, it's always, there's always a partisan, sometimes bitter division over these things. Uh, and, um, it, you know, it's also important because the Supreme court really has undergone a shift in just the last couple of years for decades, they had been fairly stable in their overall position on the political spectrum. The, the center of the court was moderately conservative. The, the, if you took the media, if you lined up the justices from the most conservative to the most liberal, the one in the middle who would have a lot of control as a, as a decisive voter, the fifth vote out of nine is going to make a majority. And so that middle voter would be someone like Sandra Day O'Connor, or then at one point, Anthony Kennedy. And they were appointed by Republican presidents, and they were Republican uh, Republicans themselves. Relatively moderate, they, they might agree with more liberal views on some issues and more conservative views on some other issues. And so it meant it was sometimes hard to predict what the Supreme Court was going to decide. It was often There were maybe four on one side and four on the other, and it really was going to come down to one person in the middle, and you weren't entirely sure what they might say. They really did swing back and forth. And just in the last couple of years, that has obviously shifted with the retirement of Justice Kennedy in 2018 and then the uh, passing of Justice Ginsburg uh, in uh, 2020. Um, They were replaced by people who are more conservative, and so now you have a pretty solid majority of six conservatives who are pretty reliably, uh, taking conservative positions on the issues. Now the median justice is pre- probably Brett Kavanaugh, who is, uh, probably, he would probably not describe him as a moderate. He's a more, more of a, a stronger conservative person. He, um, I mean, he's less conservative than some others, like Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, but nevertheless, you probably wouldn't describe him as a moderate. And so, it you know, it changes the nature of the decisions. There's just different a different uh, number of votes there on some of these issues, and it means they may change things that they had decided in the past, and they're pretty willing to do so. They're, uh, you know, some judges might be more hesitant and say, oh, just for the sake of stability, let's maintain existing precedent and not overturn things too much. Let's go slowly. And some some of the members of the court, like Chief Justice John Roberts, might be somewhat more in favor of that. Uh, but some of the justices don't particularly care about that. So Clarence Thomas, maybe more than any anyone else, he would say, let's just get it right. I don't care if we change something that was just decided or that was decided 100 times over. Let's just make sure we get it right. So they are willing to change things, and that makes it— uh, it makes it interesting. I guess the other things that sort of surround the Supreme Court in controversies these days are, one, there were a lot of grievances about the way the recent appointments to fill vacancies on the court went. The Obviously, when Justice Scalia passed away, they didn't replace him until after the next election. And so Barack Obama didn't get to make that uh, point. He appointed someone, but didn't get that person considered. And then on the other hand, when Justice Ginsburg died, they pretty quickly did replace her so that seemed inconsistent to a lot of people, and the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh and his, the issues surrounding him were controversial, so there's all that. And then on top of that, you've had a lot of stories that are people are maybe aware of over the last year about ethical issues surrounding the Supreme Court. It, it turns out, I guess, that if you're on the Supreme Court, there, there are billionaires who would want to go on vacation with you and take you on a pretty— a pretty luxurious vacation uh, free of charge uh, just because they are your friend. Uh, And so that's come to light and that some of that wasn't disclosed. And so people are talking about those. Should there be some way of of dealing more with those ethics issues or potential conflicts of interest and that sort of thing? So you have all that. And uh, I'll talk about some of the things they're going to decide this year. They're pretty interesting. Um, I would say they're not huge blockbusters like, Once in a decade, uh, sorts of issues that would come along this year, but they're nevertheless interesting. Uh, One of them, I'll I'll say a bit about. It's it's probably not the most important one, but I think it's kind of interesting, and it is it's something we can all relate to at least. We have some. I don't know a lot about social media. I'm not real uh, active on. I don't think I've ever been on Twitter, and uh, my my Facebook is really not used for anything. Uh, It's just there in case someone's really trying to find me. But, you know, social media is a pretty big deal these days for a lot of people. And it raises freedom of speech issues. And in fact, you know, these days when freedom of speech issues come along, they almost always have the, the new ones that are sort of important. They almost always have something to do with online speech You know, that's the new frontier sort of issue. It's like with, um, you know, student speech is really interesting. Like what rights do students have when they're in high school and that sort of thing to express themselves? The cases used to be about all kinds of things. It could be about the school newspaper, or maybe a a student gave a speech uh, in the auditorium and it was controversial, or maybe they want to do some kind of protest. Like the old classic case was about students up in Iowa who wanted to protest the Vietnam War and wear black armbands to do that. Are they allowed to do that? These days, every issue about freedom of speech for students is about something on Instagram or TikTok or one of those kinds of things. They're putting stuff about their school on there, and then it gets to be controversial. So that has arisen, but it's in the context of government officials. To the extent a government official could be the mayor or governor or the president even. To the extent that they uh, maintain a social media presence, uh, do the rest of us have a right to access it and comment on it? Um, this arose, uh, really famously with President Trump, former President Trump, who was, as you may know, was pretty big on, uh, Twitter, the, or at least what was previously known as Twitter. And he had a lot of, he started an account before he was, uh, ran for president and he, he continued to have it when he was the president, had lots of followers and millions of them. And he used it quite a bit. He was very prolific on, on what was then known as Twitter. Uh, and then eventually that, some of that became, Uh, controversial uh, because uh, some of these platforms, I think it sort of started with in the summer of 2020, he had some uh, content that was uh, deemed by Twitter to be uh, problematic. And um, in particular, after the, the death of George Floyd and protests about that, he said some things about shooting. If there was any looting, then there would be shooting, that the military would be used and that sort of thing. So that was seen as glorifying violence. And some other tweets addressed uh, ele- issues in the run-up to the election about like the idea that, that mail-in ballots are all fraudulent, and that was deemed by Twitter to be misleading. So they were, they were not stopping these tweets, but they were uh, flagging them as being problematic in some way, misleading or Glorifying violence. And then you had other issues that came along. The one was uh, t- um, Twitter um, uh, censored some stories about Hunter Biden's laptop. So the these stories about the laptop computer belonging to the president's son, there was reporting on that by the New York Post and uh, Twitter was concerned that it might be sort of a fake story. And so they uh, had... Uh, at least temporarily, they had blocked some of that stuff from being circulated on Twitter, and then you had the whole election in 2020 with all the controversy surrounding that, and then you had the events of January 6th. So eventually, Donald Trump was, you know, suspended or banned permanently. I guess I don't know if he ever came back after the change in ownership, but but uh, he he moved on to his own platform, I guess. But uh, but at least at, at one point, you know, he was blocked because they were worried that he would incite further violence. So you had all of those things going on. And then mixed up in all that, you have COVID, the pandemic going on. And the uh, things like Facebook are under pressure to do something about circulation of misinformation, you know, through Facebook. If people are putting stuff up there about you know, vaccines or whatever it may be, uh, the the origins, even there were controversy about the origins of the virus, did it come from a lab leak or whatever. So there's some... Uh, some uh, attempt to sort of uh, limit what information gets spread. All of this adds up to a feeling by some people that the tech companies are biased and that they have a, uh, that they are they themselves, Google and Apple and Facebook and all these companies were perceived as being run by more liberal people and that they had essentially an approach of discriminating against conservative viewpoints and Donald Trump or the Hunter Biden laptop or Clinton. Uh, views about COVID, whatever it may be, it was seen as uh, a systematic censorship or suppression. Sometimes people said, oh, even if they're not censoring it, maybe they're using their algorithms to make it less likely that more conservative viewpoints would be expressed. And so, you know, what do you, what do, you do about that if you feel that there is that kind of a discrimination? One possibility would be that you might uh, file a lawsuit against them. You might think to yourself, well, they should probably sue them and say that it's violating, you know, freedom of speech. Uh, And some, some tried to do that. There's a guy, Dennis Prager, who's a conservative radio host and puts a lot of things on YouTube, short videos on YouTube, about political and social issues. And he filed a lawsuit against Google, who owns YouTube, and said, you're censoring me in these different ways. You're making it harder for people to access my videos because you just don't like them politically. And he lost his case, even if maybe YouTube was censoring him in some sense. He still lost the case. The reason is because... YouTube and and Google are private things, but they're private businesses and and they're allowed to do what they want. Just like, you know, a a TV network gets to decide what shows to put on or a radio station, a private radio station gets to decide what shows they're going to put on. They may not pick you. They may not uh, put the the newspaper, may not publish your writing and they may publish somebody else. So, uh, so that, so these cases were unsuccessful because you, you you have a, a constitutional right not to have the government stopping you from speaking, but you don't have a constitutional right for anybody else, for private businesses to, to uh, let you do whatever you want to do with your speech. If you want to speak, go ahead, but you can't demand that somebody else let you, allow you to speak or help you speak or provide you the means to speak. So that was unsuccessful. Some people argued that that should be changed, that somehow the social media companies and the tech companies had just become so big and powerful that we ought to rethink that because they, they account for such a huge amount of uh, expression that occurs these days. But at least under existing law, it's pretty clear they're private companies and can do what they want. And so people who, ha- who are concerned about discrimination turn to another branch of the government. They turn to legislatures. They went to state legislatures that they thought would be friendly to them, sympathetic to them. And they said, we should pass laws that prevent the tech companies from continuing to do this. And so for example, in Florida, they passed a law a year or two ago Signed by Ron DeSantis, one of the presidential candidates, and it was aimed at the big tech companies and what was perceived that they were doing wrong. And it require it does a number of things. One is they're not allowed to deplatform any political candidates. They're not allowed to like ban them uh, or any uh, journalistic enterprises, any 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 newspapers or other news, online news or whatever. They have to basically give them a chance to be on, and they have to. It basically was aimed at preventing political discrimination in the way they treat all the people who post content on these sites so you couldn't it would be it would become a uh, illegal to uh, uh, disfavor conservative viewpoints and if you did you could get sued and owe a bunch of money to people and so uh, and some other states passed laws like this as well and so um, some of the uh, some of the uh, 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 some of the the tech companies these uh, tech companies have sued about this and they are, claiming that this violates their freedom of speech. And so it's a pretty big issue. They, uh, there's a lawsuit about the law like this in Florida. There's one about the law like this in Texas. And I think it's a pretty tough issue. Their, their claim is that, again, they're just private entities. And it should be just like if you had a newspaper. You know, if you'd start a newspaper, you can put whatever you want in it. And you don't have to publish things by all writers. You can be selective and do what you want to do about it. Uh, and same if you have a website, if you want to start a website, you can put all of your thoughts on there. And if you don't want to, if you want to publish things that other people say, that's fine. But if you don't want to publish what some other people say, that's up to you. You control, it's your private thing and you control what you want to put in there. The argument by the States is that again, one is just that these tech companies have been basically that they, they've become so big and so successful that they have such a huge portion now of the of essentially of the market for speech and that yeah you could say oh if you don't if you can't get on twitter if you can't get on facebook if you can't get on all these things you could still express yourself but you won't be able to do so nearly as effectively you'll be shut out to a large extent from being able to reach as many people and therefore we ought to treat speech we ought to treat this situation involving these tech companies differently we ought to allow states to require them essentially to treat everybody the same It's sort of like if you had a railroad, it might be a private railroad, but traditionally it would be treated as a common carrier, meaning it, it, even though it's a private entity, it sort of serves the public interest and they sort of have to, they have to allow everybody to ship their freight, to ship their cargo and treat them all essentially the same, charge them the same amount and not discriminate. So, um, so there was one court that, uh, did, uh, strike down the Florida law like this. There was one that upheld the Texas law. So it creates a, a, a split between the the uh, the lower courts, and so the Supreme Court has decided to hear this and um the argument on that I'm trying to remember when exactly the uh, argument would be I'll check here that one is coming up, I think on oh, maybe that one hasn't been set yet, sorry, I'm trying to remember all the dates so just so you have a sense of when these come up. but um I think it's a tough one because again, traditionally, these are just private companies and they can do what they want but The, the argument by the, one of the arguments by the state is we're not compelling Facebook or Twitter or, or YouTube or anything. We're not compelling them to actually say anything. They aren't being forced to say anything. They're just being forced to accept the content of someone else. And then that's different from, it'd be like if you forced a newspaper to print certain words, that would be one thing. But if you just force a website to allow content by others, that that's not as problematic from a free speech perspective. Um, and that, so they're not being compelled to actually say anything, the tech companies, and they are not being prevented from saying anything. If Facebook or Twitter or whoever runs these things, whatever they still want to say, if they want to say that they don't like certain content or if they want to say that they think everybody should get vaccinated or that they're anti-racist or whatever, that they're still free to do that. The people who run these companies can express themselves just as much as they want. So they're not being forced to say anything. And they're not being prevented from saying anything. They're just being um, limited in their ability to curate or regulate the content that other people put on their site. Again, the tech companies would say, but that's, inf- that's infringing our expression. Part of the way we express ourselves is by the way we control the content that goes on here. If we say, we don't want you putting up violent, racist material on our on our forum, on our uh, on our website, we're expressing something about our views about that content. We're saying we don't agree with it. We're saying that it's a bad thing. So that is a form of expression by us, and it should be protected by the First Amendment. We should have freedom of speech just as much as anybody else. And again, if they don't like it, they can take their content elsewhere, or they can start their own platform and start your own social media thing. So that's probably the that's the biggest, most important thing that the Supreme Court will be deciding about freedom of speech. They have another that I think is also... Um, pretty interesting, which is again, just about individual government officials and when they use social media. So again, this one of the big examples was Donald Trump, that Donald Trump was big user of Twitter and then uh, eventually was kicked off that platform after January 6th. Uh, In addition, he ran into controversy with um, his Twitter account because he would, before he was barred from it, he had a practice of sometimes blocking people from uh, accessing his Twitter account, he would block them on Twitter. And again, I don't know a lot about how it works, but if you use Twitter, you probably have some sense that if somebody blocked you, then I guess they aren't able to see your tweets and they're not able to like them or reply to them or retweet them out there. Uh, so uh, sometimes uh, Donald Trump would do that and there were some people who he, he would block them if, if you put up criticism of him, if you put negative things about him on his Twitter account in response to his tweets, then he might block you. And he did that to some people and they uh, sued him and said, took the position that his, again, normally, if you're just a private person, you can control your Twitter account and if you wanna block people, so so be it. But what about the fact that he is the president? You know, he's a government official. And the argument was that he was using his Twitter account for a lot of official purposes. He was making important announcements about appointments or firings of important officials. He was announcing new policy measures and things about diplomatic relations with other countries and that sort of thing. And so these people sued him and they won. The, uh didn't go to the Supreme Court, but the lower court said essentially that he was using his Twitter account for official purposes. And he therefore had turned it into a public forum where people were, therefore, if he kept it private, so be it. If he just used it to, you know, tweet about his grandchildren or, or whatever, whatever he would do, that would be fine. But uh, once you're uh, once you're uh, I don't even know if he has grandchildren, I suppose he probably does. The other uh, states children, whatever he uh, if you're if you're using it for your official stuff, then you've created a, a public place where people can debate the issues. And then it's discrimination if you uh, bar certain certain of your constituents from it because of their political viewpoints. So that case wound up it would have probably gone to the Supreme Court, but it wound up being moot because, number one uh Trump was not reelected as president and so he was back to being a private person and in addition he was uh kicked off Twitter at least temporarily anyway so the supreme court uh dismissed that case as being moot but the is now coming back to them at a lower level of government there's a couple cases one is from California where there are some uh uh school board officials so they're on on the on the school board in a district out near San Diego and they've been using um you know, Facebook and, and it's there, they created these accounts when they were running for office and then they got elected and they have their title on there, you know, school board member and they post some stuff about what's going on in the school district, new events and that sort of thing, meetings coming up and stuff. And there's a particular family there that has a lot of issues with the school system and are very uh, critical of it, maybe in some justified ways and maybe not in any event they're taking, they've tried to go to school board meetings to express themselves and felt like they weren't being heard And so they instead shifted to using online approaches to express themselves. And so they're posting things on Facebook, on the pages of these two school board members. And they're not doing it in the, they're not uh, maybe following the best etiquette for social media use. They're taking, uh, they write something and then they post it like 200 times in identical cut and paste in response to every post that's on the person's Facebook page. So the, 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 the school board members say, you know, you're really just kind of spamming us and it's kind of rude. And so we're going to we're going to block you from using it. And uh, so there the courts uh, felt that that was a form of discrimination, that these people were were they there. This wasn't just their personal Facebook page. It had their position, their official position noted on there, and they were using it to say things about school district matters. And so, again, they had created the idea was they had created a public forum where people were entitled to express themselves and to talk back to these public officials. There's another case that went the other way. This one was from Michigan about a guy who was the city manager and he has a Facebook page and he has, you know, again, stuff on there about his kids. And, oh, here's a picture from the birthday party or whatever. Uh, But he also has uh, notes that he has a job as city manager. And he will sometimes post things about, oh, we, we've issued a new policy on this. He'll try to publicize things that they're doing. And that was all fine until the COVID pandemic. And then he was responsible for making their policies during the pandemic about what, you know, whatever was masking or whatever other measures they were taking to deal with that. And there was somebody locally there who disagreed very strongly with some of what the positions that were being taken And so that person was criticizing him on the Facebook page of the city manager. And so he blocked this person. And uh, so that person, uh, 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 the courts ruled against him. And they said essentially that even though this Facebook page of the city manager did have, it did mention that the guy was the city manager and it did have some content that related to his job for the city. It's not like it was the official Facebook page of the city. It wasn't, this guy was not like the, the, public relations person or the social media manager for the city, he he didn't even have to have a Facebook page. I mean, it wasn't a part of his job to maintain a Facebook page. He just happened to do so. Uh, and so they said that's a better approach. It should only become a public forum where everybody has a right to participate in it and you can't block people. It's not just that it has some content about your job. It has to sort of be a part of your job. If it's a part of your job that you handle the social media, then, yeah, you know, then it's out there and everybody has to participate. So again, it's a split between the courts on how to approach that. And that will, um, that will be decided by the Supreme Court coming up pretty soon. And again, that one, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I'm kind of sympathetic to the, I like freedom of speech. I think it's generally, it's a great thing. I think um, I'm sympathetic to the, I don't like the idea that government officials would be able to pick and choose and, oh, you're not allowed to be on my social media and say things just because you're saying negative things about me. But on the other hand, I don't know, I could see the idea that, you know, everybody, you're going to have cr- so much criticism these days and might be nice to be able to just maintain a Facebook page, even if you're, clearly you could just take, you could just maintain, you could avoid the problem by just having a purely private page and just don't mention your job on there. But but short of that, yeah, I think that one's kind of, kind of a tough issue. They will hear the argument for that one coming up on Halloween, so... I don't know if the Supreme Court does anything special for Halloween. If they uh, they probably don't, they probably don't wear any costumes or anything. But uh, but uh, that one is coming up. So I think that one's kind of an interesting one there. uh, It wouldn't be normal these days if unless the Supreme Court was deciding something about elections and voting and all of that. Obviously, that's super controversial now. So they do have a case coming up about that, which is about uh, gerrymandering. And gerrymandering used to be a pretty obscure thing, like you know nobody talked about. It. Now it's kind of a pretty hot topic that people know what it's about. So it's about you know drawing up the district lines for elections to favor one side or the other. And a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court made an important decision about political gerrymandering, which was that it doesn't violate the Constitution. And court, federal courts, at least under the federal constitution, can't do anything about it. It's just none of their business. If you're going, it's a political thing, if you don't like it, vote for somebody else or argue. In, out in the legislature or get your state to change it or whatever it may be, but, but the courts just didn't really feel like they, it was their business to crack down on it. On the other hand, there's another type of g- racial gerrymandering that might occur, which is racial gerrymandering. You might have a legislature that's drawing up the districts in a way that is with reference to the race of where different voters are in the, in the districts and trying to diminish the, the political influence of certain people. Uh, and this used to be pretty common years ago, and now the government, uh, and the courts have been cracking down on it. It's seen as being a violation of your equal protection rights. You have a a right not to be subjected to racial discrimination. There was a big case about that. last year down in Alabama that you may have seen things in the news about. And there's one now that the Supreme Court will decide in South Carolina. South Carolina, when they redid the districts after the last census, they changed some of the districts around Charleston and they moved, I think about 30,000 black voters from one district to another. Uh, and it wasn't entirely just black voters, but it seemed to be sort of geared to that uh, based on the location of the you know different parts of the city and uh, the demographics of them. And so there was a lawsuit about that. They said, essentially, you're you moved a bunch of black voters, a large number of black voters in, in order to make this district that they were previously in. It would be more favorable. It would tilt more heavily toward the Republican candidates. And so there was a lawsuit filed about that, and the court said, yeah, I think that was a racial gerrymander. It seems that it was – looks like it was done with respect to race. Nobody said that that was the reason, but we would infer that that was why that was done, and that would be a violation of people's rights. They're being discriminated against. The Republican Party of South Carolina says it wasn't a racial thing. It was just political we weren't moving these people because they're black, we're moving them because they're Democrats. And we, we wanted, yeah, we wanted to hurt the Democrats. We wanted to put them over here in this other district where their votes would, we, we were gonna sort of scatter their votes across a few districts where they wouldn't be all that influential and this remaining district would be more Republican. And so that's, that's okay. We're allowed to do political gerrymandering. Why are you saying it's a racial thing? this is the Supreme Court will have to decide what to do about that. What if it look? I mean, you could describe it as racial, but it, it, sure it's also political. I'm sure it's intertwined, perhaps, or at the very least, it's just hard to say. The difficulty is that there's a correlation between race and politics um, as a general matter, in particular with black voters. They, you know, 80 or 90% of the time in most elections, they're voting for the Democratic candidate. And so if you see a legislature that seems to be drawing the districts in a way that takes account of that. It's hard to say, is that a racial thing or is that which would be unconstitutional? Or is it just a political thing? And the Supreme Court has said, eh, nothing we can do about that. That's just politics. You just sort of let that play out. So that's a, that's a pretty interesting one. That one's actually going to be argued this upcoming week on uh, Wednesday. I think we'll get to see, hear the argument in that one. So kind of interesting. I, um, I used to work before I became a professor. I worked for a gun control organization in Washington, D.C., and so did some things relating to the Second Amendment. And they do have a big case about the Second Amendment that, is, uh, that they're going to decide this year. And they've decided a few other big cases about the Second Amendment, as you may know, over the last – well, it really, it really sort of goes back to 2008. They decided a case that year uh, that was very important, and it was really about how, how broad is the Second Amendment what is the scope of it? Who does it protect? And they decided it's pretty broad. They decided that it broadly applies. It's not just for people who are in a well-regulated militia. That doesn't limit it. It's, it applies to everybody and use of guns for all kinds of purposes, um, hunting, uh-huh. target shooting, and it, perhaps most importantly, for uh, protection against crime. If you're going to defend yourself against criminals, the right to keep arms would apply to people for that purpose. So they decided that, but then it left another very important big issue still to be resolved, which, okay, the Second Amendment's pretty broad. It covers people having guns for a lot of different purposes. But how strong is it? Right? That's an equally important question. It could be a very broad right that applies to everybody. And it might be a really, really strong one. Like, hey, you just, the government just really can't do anything. Guns have to be unregulated. You really can't have any laws. Or it could be broad, but pretty weak. It could be like, yeah, everybody has a right to keep their arms, but, you know, it's not it's not an absolute thing. All, no, no rights are, are complete and absolute. We can have gun regulations as long as the government's got a decent, you know, a decent uh, safety purpose in mind. Like they, they, let's say they, they prohibit convicted felons from having guns. Is that going to reduce crime? hard to say, but you could at least plausibly think that it might. You could say, oh, if somebody has a criminal record, that suggests maybe they would commit other crimes and it might be safer not to allow them to go out and purchase a gun. So, you know, it's hard to say if that's a, 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 how effective such a law would be. People might get around it or there might be loopholes, but, it, but courts would tend to uphold it and say, you know, the government's got a got a plausible theory about why that might be beneficial for society. So the question uh, for the for the next question the Supreme Court had to decide was, again, how strong is this right? What would the test be when a gun law is being challenged? What does the government have to show for it to be upheld? Do they have to totally show that it absolutely will work and it's absolutely vital that we have it? Or do they just have to show, I mean, that it's not a ridiculous law, that it might possibly be effective or helpful in some way? Supreme Court, uh, just a year ago, when they addressed this, they said, it's really none of that. It's not about how effective the law would be. It's not about whatever data you could bring in about the modern world and you know what laws would work or not work. When it comes to the right to keep bear arms, it's gotta be evaluated in a completely historical manner. All that matters is what would they have thought 150 or 250 years ago about what the right to keep bear arms means. And so it's the government, if they want to have a gun law. If they want it to be upheld, it's a burden is on the government to come in and show that there's some historical precedent for it, that back in the era, the late 1700s or into the early 1800s, that they had some sort of law like that, that was similar to what we're trying to have today. And so that can be really difficult for a couple of reasons. One, again, well, well, one is simply that who knows what they thought 150 or 250 years ago about a lot of these issues. I mean, they didn't really debate. They didn't have the gun control debate in the modern way that we would think about that issue. They were worried about a lot of different things, but not so much that. And and in, and in the 200 some years since then, a lot of things have changed. The nature of gun technology has changed and law enforcement and the population is bigger and we have bigger cities and society is different. And it's just a lot of crime is different and all these things are different. And so it's just hard to go back in time and know what they would have thought about particular issues that might arise today. I mean, for example, the issue of should convicted felons be allowed to have guns. They didn't really talk a lot about it because they tended to execute convicted felons. So they weren't they weren't imprisoning them and then releasing them and then deciding what rights they would have. They were just uh, executing them. And so the case the Supreme Court will hear about this, this will be the first case they decide where, they, where they're applying that. They're trying to figure out if a law has historical support. And again, if there's no support one way or the other, the government will lose. Right. If we if they just never talked about it and such a law never existed, we don't just say, well, then we'll let the government do it. Instead, the government will lose the burdens on the government. And the case is about the case is about this guy, uh, Zaki Rahimi is his name, I guess. And he is apparently a drug dealer. At least he's described that way in, in the information about the case. He's somebody who was involved in illegal activities. He had a history of armed violence. He um, got into a fight with. Um, Uh, his girlfriend in a parking lot somewhere and he was violent with her and threw in the car and she was injured. And then he, he allegedly threatened to kill her if she, to shoot her, if she said anything about it. And then, uh, so she went and got a restraining order against him, a restraining order because of the domestic violence. And then, um, sometime later, the, uh, police went and got a warrant and they searched his house for unrelated reasons. They, he was a suspect in some shootings. And they found that he was in possession of some guns. That was illegal because of the restraining order. There's a federal law that was enacted back in the 1990s that says, if you are under a domestic violence restraining order, it's illegal for you to have firearms. And this guy was violating that. So he was convicted for that and he appealed it. And the uh, court of appeals down there uh, in the Texas area, pretty conservative court down there, they ruled in his favor and they said, there's no historical precedent for this kind of a law, right? It, it disarms, bans the possession of guns by domestic violence, uh, domestic abusers, people who are under these domestic restraining orders. And yeah, there just wasn't, um, there's no historical, the government can't point to any similar law that existed in the late 1700s or early 1800s. I'm sure they're right. There were no such laws. Why were there no such laws? Because the concept of domestic violence was not really a recognized thing. At that time, at that time, uh, the American, the American legal tradition, they inherited it from England, which was that it was okay for a husband to use violence against his wife. Uh, they had it started to have some restrictions, like you shouldn't use a, a switch that's bigger than your thumb, but that was as progressive as they got. That they limited the type of abuse that could be inflicted. So it wasn't until later in the 1800s, maybe 1870s, 1880s, that some states gradually started to at least uh, make some kind of a crime exist. It wasn't necessarily enforced well, but they started to ad- accept the idea that domestic violence was bad. But in the late 1700s, early 1800s, there was, there was no concept like that. So there was, there was nothing, there's no way the government's going to be able to prevail if they're required to really show specifically that there was such a law in the uh, back in that time period. It wasn't like, I mean, they're not going to find evidence that, you know, James Madison said it, anything about it one way or the other or any of those other people. There just will be nothing. So that will be interesting to see how that goes. I don't know why the Supreme Court even wanted to take that case. Uh, who Four of them must have voted that they wanted to decide that issue, but I don't know why. I mean, are, do some of them really want to have headlines that say Supreme Court, the more conservative ones, do they want to have headlines that say Supreme Court provides a big victory for domestic violence? I can't imagine they do. So I don't know. So maybe it will. Maybe they will actually. Maybe it was the more liberal judges and some of the moderates or something who wanted to hear that case. But I don't know. I think it's. Uh, I think it will be interesting to uh, see. The one other case, I'll just take a, like one minute here just to say about one other case, which is kind of dry, but actually pretty important. And I'll say more about it if people want to hear about it. It's about how much discretion administrative agencies should have to decide what they're supposed to do. Congress passes statutes. And then you got all these agencies, the EPA and the FTC and the SEC and the FCC and FDA and so on, all these agencies that implement and they pass regulations and they implement what Congress wants. But sometimes it's kind of ambiguous what Congress wants. And for like 40 years, the tradition has been that we're pretty deferential to these agencies. As long as it's reasonable the way they're interpreting what Congress has told them to do, that's fine. We'll will we'll defer to their expertise and their authority on that. But there, some of the conservative judges really don't like that. They, they, they would like smaller government. They'd like administrative agencies to do as little as possible. So they want to overrule that tradition and say that when it's ambiguous that the agencies can't do anything and that courts can interpret what Congress intended and so that one' it's a little, it's a little more dry and, and sound, it's more of a boring administrative issue, but in some ways more important than any of the others, because agencies do so many different things in environmental law and labor and employment and all these other areas, and so if they really were curtailed in what they can do, that would be a pretty big deal. Right. Well I will stop there, and again, I'm happy to answer your questions uh, to the extent you want to
0: ask them. Okay, Thank you, Alan. All right. Any questions? Thank you very much. It was very interesting. Um, I'm no expert, but I think we're supposed to have separation of church and state under the constitution. To what extent has the uh, Supreme court gotten to the point where uh, established religions are affecting the decisions that come out of that? That's a good question.
1: The Supreme court has really, Transform. I'm speaking at another event in a couple of weeks uh, for a, a, a continuing legal education for thing for lawyers, and it is all about religion and and those rights. And the Supreme Court has really um, is really shifting on those religious issues. In in the past, it used to be the idea was, you know, you have a right to free exercise of religion, and that should be strongly protected so that you, and you can make your own private choices about what you want to do religiously. But then on the other hand, in the public sphere, that we would keep things neutral because there's lots of different religious traditions. And so in private, you'd have strong uh, religious right to free exercise, but the Establishment Clause would, as you said, maintain separation of church and state within the public sphere, like in public schools or public uh, other public settings, government offices, and that sort of thing, and the Supreme Court—they're—they're um, they're very strong these days. The new conservative majority is very strong on the free exercise side of it. I mean, more, maybe more so than ever before. They really do strongly believe that people um, have a right to free exercise and that it doesn't merely include being able to, you know, go and worship as you see fit and make your choices about yourself and your family and that sort of thing. But it also means you shouldn't be left out of any programs essentially because of your religious views. So they, they've ruled in Missouri had a program where for playgrounds, where you could get, um, old, old, you could get playground, new playground surfaces made out of old tires and stuff. And they, but they didn't include churches. So like if a church had a preschool or something, their playground wouldn't be included. And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the church and said, no, you can't exclude people from that kind of program. They made another one, a decision like that about in Philadelphia, where they have um, you know, adoption services being provided and some are religiously oriented and they might have views about um, same-sex couples and not wanting to provide services for them. And the Supreme Court said, you can't exclude them because of their religious views. So they're really cracking down on any situation where you might characterize where where the government says we don't we don't we don't we're trying to maintain ch- separation of church and state, but somebody sees that as disc- actually turning into discrimination against religion. So on the one hand, they're doing that on the free exercise side of things, and then on the establishment clause side of things, what they've basically decided is they, they had a case last year about a football coach in uh, out in Bremerton, Washington, who was uh, wanted to pray after the games, and originally. It was characterized as being a very individual thing; that it was just his individual choice, which would have been fine uh, for him to pray in that setting. It, you can't—you can have prayer in the schools, just not or, an organized one uh, by by uh, you know the, the teachers and that sort of thing. And but it had turned into a larger thing with pe- pe- lots of people from his team and people from the other team, and the school district felt that it was going too far and becoming too much of an organized thing, and that it was problematic. And so they, uh, I think, weren't going to renew his contract. But so the Supreme Court had that case and they ruled in his favor. And not only that, but they said that the the whole approach to establishment clause cases should be changed. It used to be geared to essentially the purpose and effect of the government's action. You basically look at it it as a policy analysis, really. What are are the good things and bad things about what the government's doing? Is it interfering too much with the religion or getting them too entangled in religion? Does it have a secular purpose, not just a religious one? was really kind of that kind of evaluation of the pros and cons of what they were doing. And again, much like with the Second Amendment, the Supreme Court said, no, that's not the approach. It's got to be just historical. You got to just look back in time, again, to the time when the Bill of Rights was passed and the Constitution and later amendments like the 14th Amendment. So back in the 1700s, 1800s, what did they see as being permissible? And it has to be done in those terms. And that is... As you can imagine, it's related to the idea that you that you favor interpreting the Constitution in an in an originalist way, meaning you you feel it's most important not to decide like what the Constitution, what would be good today for us in modern modern society. But what did it mean originally? What was the original purpose of it? And so on issue after issue, they're they're becoming more and more set on deciding all the issues in that manner. Which you may like or you may think or you may think there are problems with that. It's hard to know for one thing. It's hard to know what people thought like 200 years ago.
0: I wanna come back to that bakery case. Yeah. Um, So in the 60s when they said restaurants
1: could no longer discriminate, right? Um, You talked earlier about railroads being seen as a public good, therefore they couldn't discriminate.
0: right? Um, Restaurants obviously not a public good in themselves so isn't there some way to bring
1: those arguments into play on that bakery case? Or does this court see religion as always superseding those other issues? Basically the latter, I would say. So this you're referring to a case, or anybody doesn't know all the details, there was a case last year that they decided uh, from Colorado where, you know, it w- after they had decided there's a right to same-sex marriage, they then faced the issue, well, what if some people object on religious grounds? If they're a government official, remember there was like a, a court clerk down in Kentucky who said, "I can't, you know, sign off on these weddings." The courts did say, "Look, if you're a government official, you have to serve everybody, so that that's pretty easy." But what if you're a private business? What if you, in particular, there are all these cases about people who are, uh, you know, a wedding photographer or they they bake cakes for weddings and that sort of thing. What if on religious grounds they? Uh, choose to not provide. They they if they are if their religious views are um, opposed to same sex marriage, are they allowed to uh, say that they're not going to support such a thing and provide services for it? And it runs that runs counter to many states having laws that prohibit discrimination on the grounds of race and gender and sometimes uh, sexual orientation. And so there was a case from Colorado. Uh, About this, and one of the things about it that I thought was a little interesting is some of the uh, there's some information that's come out that the the organization that was bringing these cases was a little aggressive about um, coming up with cases. They were apparently kind of setting up people who really weren't in the business of uh, providing services for like wedding photographers who've never really done any wedding photography. Maybe they took a picture at their brother's wedding or something, but that was about it. But this this group would set them up to be uh, allegedly a a uh, wedding photographer so they could bring a suit. And in fact, there was this in the case that you're mentioning, the Colorado one, they went back and and the day after the lawsuit was filed, there was an email that the, the, the person bringing the lawsuit supposedly received from someone saying, hey, I'm getting married to this guy. And, um, you know, and they both had male names. And so I'd really love for you to design a website for it and blah, blah, blah. Nobody apparently checked the email to see if it was really legitimate, uh, and so later, after the Supreme Court decided, they went and con- a reporter contacted the guy whose information was all there, and he a real person. But he said, "I don't know anything about this. Like, I didn't send that email. I am already married. I wasn't. I'm married to a woman, and I, I just, it's just, I don't know where this came from." So it seemed. Um, a little suspicious that somebody was trying to maybe uh, invent evidence to support it. But none of that changes the outcome, which is that the Supreme Court did rule in favor of the person. And they said they, they, they it's it's hard when rights conflict. I think that's one of the hardest things. I mean, I remember once I was— Years ago, I was speaking to a group at the Bill of Rights Institute in Washington, D.C. They were teachers, and we were talk- I was there to talk about the Second Amendment. And one of them said, well, why wouldn't you we just you're- – you're sort of suggesting that you wouldn't want the right to keep your arms to be strong, but why wouldn't you want everybody to have rights? Why- rights are good. Let's have as much rights as possible. And I said, well, I-, I can see why you say that, but we're used to thinking that rights are good. But you just have to remember there's – advantages and disadvantages to having more rights. I mean, somebody else has more rights, but maybe they're gonna use them in a way that it, just like there could be freedom of speech that could be in some ways harmful. So it's it's hard and then it's even harder when rights conflict. I like the idea of people not being discriminated against and that's supposed to be protected by the constitution. And on the other hand, people are supposed to have religious freedom and at least as a general matter, that's, it's it's great if they do. It's not great if people have freedom of speech, it's great if they have freedom of religion. And so here it, it clashes. And one resolution of it would be to say, look, they can have whatever views they want when they, but when they start a business and it's open to the public, it's like, we don't allow businesses to engage in racial discrimination. They can't just say, well, in my coffee shop, we don't serve people who are this color or that color or whatever. It's open for everybody and it has to be. And, and that's what we've decided to make it. And so that's the, the argument is that it should be that way. But the Supreme Court does value religious freedom so much that they said it should override that.
0: Thank you for your uh, remarks. Um, I was curious, um, in your introductory comments, you mentioned the Code of Ethics that came up particularly this year with the reporting that came out about Clarence Thomas. Um, I was interested if you could maybe talk about the processes for how something like that would get implemented. Can they just adopt the Code of Ethics that the federal courts have? Um, Does it have to come from the Supreme Court justices? Do they all have to agree? Um, What's that process? And is that something that's likely to occur?
1: there's a lot that's unknown about this uh, because they haven't had one before that's imposed on the Supreme court. There is, there are ethical rules and requirements and procedures for the lower court judges that, you know, if they have a conflict of interest, there are guidelines that, you know, for example, if they own stock in a certain company, they're not supposed to decide cases that would affect the financial uh, success of that company. Or if they have, you know, if there's individuals involved in the case and that sort of thing. So they have a code of ethics, but the Supreme Court, it's never been applied to the Supreme Court. They, I guess, feel like they can just handle it themselves. And so, but what it means is that each one makes the decisions for themselves, right? So if, you know, if um, Justice Kagan needs to decide for her, I just saw something Justice uh, Jackson was recusing herself from one of the cases. She had uh, worked on it previously before getting on Supreme Court. So she decides if she needs to recuse or disqualify herself for that. Or if Justice Thomas felt that he needed to disqualify himself from something, that would just be up to him. And it's not working that well. uh, I I think you would say, I mean, it, it, um, you know, they really, some of them really did, um, in retrospect, they must regret what they did. These vacations were not worth the embarrassment, I think, of it. They have arguments about why, oh, I don't believe that I needed to report these things. Nobody. We. There was a tradition that um, travel, it was just hospitality and they're just my friend and all this sort of thing. But these are really hollow, uh, hollow excuses, I think. And so if if they were to, one possibility is the Supreme Court could just regulate itself. They could just decide they're going to uh, make some kind of a code for themselves and enforce it amongst themselves. The other possibility, I suppose, would be that Congress could try to uh, simply legislate one. Congress makes all kinds of statutes that govern how the courts work and the jurisdiction of them and the procedures and that sort of thing. And they could try to do that. It's hard, number one, because Congress is just very divided over everything, so they have struggled to get things done. And then number two, I, I guess there's even maybe would be a question about whether it would be constitutional. And the irony is that the Supreme Court itself would get to decide that for themselves. So they may, if they really don't like being told what to do, they could simply decide, no, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't impose that upon us.
0: Um, do you, th- with the current situation of uh, polarization in this country, um, is it uh, a fair criticism of the Supreme Court? Uh, uh, majority that they have a kind of a loss of value in the idea of democracy. And it seems to be coming forward. Is that, is that a fair criticism?
1: I think so. You know, this, obviously these things are very political. So some people, some people will think the Supreme court's doing a great job, uh, if they like the results that are coming out of it. Um, but even people who might like the results of a lot of, a lot of what the Supreme court is doing might, Number 1 they might worry that the supreme court if they lose their legitimacy for a large portion of the country that in the long run it's going to harm them. And and at least polls do show that. I mean the again almost any decision they make it's going to probably drive up their support on one side and drive it down on the other but but overall their popularity or their their the, the legitimacy that they have in the eyes of people is lower than it ever has been you know in since they've been doing surveys about this. And and it it real i mean i guess they're in a tough spot i guess because they really hold these views i do believe they sincerely hold hold the views that they have they have their ideology but when they go to implement it it does seem like it's consistently reaching conclusions that match the agenda of one of the political parties and not the other and so and they and they, they you know one of one of them famously um the new justice, uh, Amy Comey Barrett, you know, gave a speech and it basically said, I- I'm here to convince you that we're not just political hacks. We're not just partisan political hacks, but I, I, how do you convince someone of that? I mean, it, if all the things that you decide seem like they reflect the views of one of the political parties, I mean, it's not 100 percent. I mean, you know, that the, they you, they could say, look, no, there are there are times when we cross party lines. They did in that case about the Alabama gerrymandering last year. I won't go into all the details, but they did reach a conclusion that was not the, what the Republican Party of Alabama would have liked. So you could say and and they did not intervene in any way in the election of 2020. Donald Trump maybe had some expectations that they might rule in his favor on something, and they they did not seem inclined to do that. So you could say that they're exercising restraint on some things. But year after year, when all the big decisions do seem to go one way, it's inevitably going to make some people feel like it's that it's not fair. And especially when you add in that I think that side feels a little unfair for other, that it's un, that the democratic process is unfair for other reasons, like the way the Senate is made up and the small states with almost no population get two senators and so does California. And the fact that the Electoral College seems to, you know, maybe have a, 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 a at least twice in recent uh, memory it has gone given the election to a, a Republican candidate who didn't get the most popular vote. So it makes it seem like the system is kind of stacked in, or tilted in one direction and not the other.
0: I could be wrong about this, but I think that the state of Oklahoma – has been issuing some kind of vouchers which people can use to go to religious or private schools. So this would seem on the surface, possibly, to present issues of separation of church and state. Do you know anything about this case in Oklahoma? And if so, could you talk about that? Um, school
1: vouchers programs have been around for a while. And I don't know specifically about the one in Oklahoma, but some states do have these programs where essentially, you know, some money is made available to families and then they can use it as they wish. And sometimes they have the option to use it in a like a in a in charter school or some other public school, uh, but they can also use it in a private school. And most of the time when they go to use it in a private school, it almost always will wind up being used in a for, at a religious school, a parochial school, because that's sort of what's available and, and what is established. And I think the Supreme Court will allow it. It does, um, un, it, it does represent a large transfer of public funds to people to be used for a religious purpose. I think that's undoubtedly the case. I mean, you're giving large checks essentially to families and they they then can go use it at a school that is a religious one. Um, the argument in favor of it uh, that, that I think the Supreme Court uh, would would adhere to is it's it's a matter of, it's being done through private choice. That family, it's just the money's being distributed equally. It doesn't matter what your religion is or, or where you want to use it. It's being distributed equally. And then it's, it's the private choice of the individual to you, it, it'd be sort of the argument. I've never thought of this before. It'd be sort of like it when, you know, when the government gives like a check because of the stimulus to, to stimulate the economy, or uh, maybe because of COVID or something, they're going to keep the economy going. Some people might use that and go use it for religion. They might, you know, donate it to a, a religious institution. Uh, other people might do other things and they would say, well, that's fine, right? Because that's your private choice. You can do what you want with the money. And they'd argue that it's similar with, with these vouchers, even though, over in in the in the end it could lead to essentially having a publicly funded and supported system of of private religious education.
0: Oh, I want to know why you said Clarence Thomas always says let's get it right.
1: <laughs> well, Speaking from his perspective, you know, there's this there's this concept of stare decisis, which is Latin for let the let the decision stand. Like, let's just stick with the law the way it is. Clarence Thomas's view has always been I don't I could care less about that. I I give zero weight to that. I would like to just do what I you know. Right is subjective and debatable. But whatever he thinks is right, he will say, I'm going to do it. I'm never going to uphold anything just because that's the way it has been in the past.
0: Okay. So thank you for joining us today. Um, For those who are listening to this later on KKFI, you've been listening to Alan Rostron. He's a professor at UMKC Law School teaching constitutional law and tort law. We've been talking with him about issues that he sees the Supreme Court is taking up um, during the new session that just started. Um, Next week, There is Jean Peters Baker will join us talking about lessons that she has learned as prosecutor. And the following week is CAFOs with Craig Volland. So thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. And now, stay tuned for Jazz in the Afternoon at 1 p.m., followed by the Happy Hour at 3 p.m., and the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. All right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. Have a great day.